This is Anchored in Christ, the sermon podcast that gives you hope in the gospel as an anchor for your soul. Brought to you from Old South Presbyterian Church in Newburyport, Massachusetts. Our second reading of scripture this morning is taken from Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. And I'd encourage you, if there's a Bible in front of you, to pick, take that out and follow along as we read, or if you brought your own Bible, uh, as we read these verses together. Luke says, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly from heaven, there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as a fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. And at this sound, the crowd gathered and was bewildered because each one heard them speaking in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Ergia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. In our own language, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others sneered and said, they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and listen to what I say. Indeed, these are not drunk, as you suppose, for it's only nine o'clock in the morning. No, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. In the last days it will be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams." Even upon my slaves, both men and women, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show portents in heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and smoky mist. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the Lord's great and glorious day. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. May the Lord add his blessing to this reading of his holy word. Let's bow for prayer. Dear God, we pray that as we are gathered here this morning, that you'd help us lay aside all of the things that we bring that distract us so that we can truly focus on what you have to say to us, not only through the sermon, but in all of our time together this morning as we worship and as we fellowship. Open our hearts, 
Open our ears. Open our lives to you. So we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We continue our sermon series this morning from the New Testament book of Acts, a series we have been calling, What is This Thing Called the Church? We are focusing on the book of Acts, not only because it gives us a vivid description of what the early church was like, warts and all, but also because it helps us understand how we today can better become the church Jesus is calling us, especially during this interim time in the life and ministry of Old South Presbyterian Church. Over the past couple of weeks, we have been reminded that the church exists for a specific purpose, and that purpose is that we might witness to Jesus in the places where we live and work and play, in the communities where we are. We are not only to tell the good news we have talked about, but also be the good news in our daily lives. We have been reminded that the same command Jesus gave to his disciples to be witnesses to his words and deeds is also given to us, to you and to me. And we have noted that the only way the early disciples were able to be the kind of witness, were able to have the kind of witness that they did in their communities where they were is because they were empowered by the Spirit. Now, in the verses that we read just a few moments ago from Luke, Luke chapter 2, Luke gives us a dramatic description of that Holy Spirit empowerment, of those early disciples being empowered by the Holy Spirit's fire. Luke tells us that it was that Spirit's fire that changed the disciples from a group of ordinary, everyday, frankly frightened individuals after Jesus had been crucified. They weren't sure what they were going to do or if the authorities were coming after them, and they were concerned. Luke says they went from being these frightened disciples into these bold witnesses for Jesus Christ in their community. Something happened in their lives to make that change. And Luke describes for us what that thing was in these verses that we looked at. Not only were they witnesses, but they became, as Scott reminded us last week, bold servant leaders for Jesus. Now, I'm aware that the sermon title, A Church on Fire, may be a bit close to home for some of us here at Old South. Uh, as you know, um, at Old South literally almost became a church on fire on Christmas Eve. When was that? Two or three years ago? Year and a half? Was it that recently? And where was that? Was that over here? Where was that little deviant candle? Okay, okay. So I see that hand. That's where the candle was. So a year and a half ago, when that renegade candle, Christmas Eve candle, near the window, tried to burn Old South down. Debbie and I were not actually here for that particular worship service, but those of you who were here or here during that time will remember that. And fortunately, that little errant candle over there was discovered in time, and that did not happen, although I understand there was some fire damage and some smoke. But as I was thinking about that, I was reminded of um, 
of what happened at First Presbyterian Church in Columbia, South Carolina one time, a number of years ago. The, the members of the church were worshiping in their sanctuary, as we are today, when someone outside noticed that the church was on fire. They noticed fire coming out of the Christian education wing in that building. Apparently, smoke was pouring out of all the windows, and flames could be seen from all over the neighborhood. And the person who saw the fire wisely called 911. Fire department came, came racing to the scene. And as the firemen ran up to the front door of the sanctuary, the congregation, who were still unaware of this fire going on in their building as they were worshiping, were just, they were just finishing singing their final hymn. And apparently, the hymn they were singing which is not in our hymn book. I actually looked. It's not in our hymn book, but a hymn that some of you may know or have heard. The hymn that they were singing was, Look ye saints, the sight is glorious. <laughs> now, certainly they were not thinking of the fire in their building, I'm guessing, when they were singing, The sight is glorious. I'm guessing if they had known there was a fire in the building, they probably would have sung something a bit more appropriate, maybe something like onward Christian soldiers marching out the door. Fire is certainly an appropriate image uh, when we read Acts 2. And look ye saints is certainly an appropriate hymn because it was indeed a glorious sight on that first Pentecost when old first church of Jerusalem caught fire by the Spirit. And fortunately, we have an excellent account of that fire in these chapters, in this chapter 2 of the book of Acts. So I want to look at these verses again. Again, if you have that in front of you, uh, uh, you can follow along with me a bit. And there's a lot here. We don't have time to touch on all of it today, but, but we're, we're going to kind of try to get the gist of it. Luke says that there was in Jerusalem a large gathering of people, religious Jews from all over the world in verses 8 through 10. And he describes in those verses the places where they came from. And if you went to a map and followed those verses and went to a map and, and saw where all those places that Luke mentions, you'd notice that it was really all over the Roman world where people were gathered in Jerusalem on that first feast of Pentecost. Pentecost, as you probably remember, was one of those feasts or festivals that Jewish people, especially Jewish men, were required to attend if possible throughout the year. So there was a lot of people in Jerusalem, Luke tells us. And while they were all gathered there, suddenly, and here's, here's Luke's words again, he says, from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where the disciples were sitting. Divided tongues as of fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. Now, when these people who had come from all over, all over the world heard the noise and they saw these tongues of fire and they heard the disciples speaking in their own languages, Luke says they were amazed and perplexed in verse 12. Some of them asked, what is this? What does this mean? Why is this happening? But Luke tells us that others in the crowd snickered and sneered and some of them said, ah, they must be filled with new wine. That's why they're doing this. They've been drinking. These people must be drunk. They are far too happy to be sober. You see, some in the crowd just couldn't believe 
God could or would give Jesus' disciples this kind of joy, this kind of enthusiasm. As I was reading this, I was reminded of an experience I had in college. I had just become a, a Christian. I became a Christian when I was a freshman in college. And for me, I, had, I experienced such a newfound joy in the Lord that sometimes I just wanted to sing and shout. I don't do that as much now, but when I was a new Christian, I just wanted to sing and shout. I don't know if you ever felt that way, but there was just something that just wanted to make you want to do that. And I remember one time uh, being on an elevator in our university. It was not a Christian university, it was a secular university. I was on an elevator in our university dorm with several other new Christians like myself, and we were talking, and we were laughing, and we were singing. And when we got to our floor and started to get off the elevator, some guys were standing there uh, waiting to get on the elevator, and they saw us laughing and singing, and they said to us with that kind of snicker, so what are you guys on? What have you been smoking? What have you been drinking? And you can just tell they just saw this enthusiasm, and they assumed that we must be on something. This was in the early 70s, so that tells you a lot. Um, I think they could just not imagine anyone being that joyful unless they were on something. And this is what some of the people just assumed on that first Pentecost when the Spirit came and the disciples were filled with joy and they spoke in many languages. They spoke in the languages that all of these people who'd come from all of these places could understand. Now, how you'd think people could be drunk and doing that, I don't know. Uh, but they just they'd assumed the disciples had been drinking or that they were on something. But Peter assures them, if you look in verses 14 and following, that it is not because they are drunk or they've been drinking that they are able to say or do these things, but because they have been filled with God's spirit. Verse 17 and following, Peter quotes from the Old Testament prophet Joel. Debbie and I have been reading through the Old Testament. We haven't gotten to Joel. We're in Jeremiah right now. It takes a while to get through Isaiah. Uh, it takes a while to get to Jeremiah, but we will get to Joel. And, here's, and Joel says in his prophecy, he predicted that in the last days, God would pour out his spirit on all flesh. And this pouring of his spirit on all flesh would have such a cataclysmic effect on the early disciples that they would truly become a people infused with God's spirit and empowered to be his witnesses. Frankly, I think if this had not happened, those early disciples would have just floundered. They would, I mean, would we have even known about the church if the Spirit had not come in the way that the Spirit came? He said they would be his witnesses where they were and in all Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. And that's literally what happened at Pentecost. They became a church on fire. A number of years ago, there was a string of church fires that happened in Alabama. Remember that? A few years ago. Authorities for several weeks didn't know who was setting these churches on fire. And it went on for a week or two. And there was great concern about it. Finally, they got a tip and found out that three college students uh, were doing this. And they were arrested. And they were accused of setting five Baptist churches churches on fire one day and then a few days later four more churches a total of nine churches 
But a break in the case didn't come until one of the suspects finally confided to someone that he had, and I quote him now, done something stupid. You think? He confessed that he, and these were his words, he said he confessed that he had set a church on fire. Those were his exact words. This reminds me of an old country church that was on fire one time. The town's atheist was in line handing in buckets of water. You know, they didn't have fire engines, so they were handing buckets of water to one another. Kind of that bucket brigade kind of thing. Seeing him in the charred entrance of the church, an elder of the church said to him, this is the first time I've ever seen you in this church. The atheist looked up at him and shot back, well, this is the first time I've ever seen this church on fire. What does it mean to be a church on fire? Well, I'm sure it means a lot of things. But certainly I think a church on fire, at the very least, is a church that makes every effort to both worship and witness, as Scott Sunquist reminds us in the book we've been reading, Why Church? A church that seeks to live out the gospel both in life and in its ministry context. A church on fire, I think, is a church that takes seriously Jesus' command to be and to make disciples of Jesus. A church that not only seeks to know about Jesus, but to actually follow him. A church on fire is a church that ministers not only to its own members, but also to its community. A church that focuses not only on worship and mission, but also on evangelism and on justice and making a positive difference in the world. A church that prioritizes loving God and loving one another and loving neighbors. You see, I think the reason so many people were attracted to that early church, imperfect as it was, and it was not a perfect church. As we go through Acts, we'll see that there were problems and issues just like we face today. They weren't perfect. But still, they could see that there was something qualitatively different about their lives and their ministry and their relationships and their priorities and their actions that they were very attracted to. Their love for one another, their caring for widows and orphans, their concern for the poor and the needy, their commitment to serving strangers and their neighborhoods, their giving of their time and talents and resources and their sense of community, their love for Jesus. People were attracted to these things and they wanted to be a part of it. They were so attracted, Luke tells us, later in Acts 2.41, that as many as 3,000 people came to faith on that day. 3,000 people. I think these verses in Acts prompt us to ask the question, can people on the outside see that we are a people spiritually on fire for Jesus? Can they see something of that enthusiasm, that commitment, that love for one another in our daily lives? Can people look at us and say there is something qualitatively different about our love for each other, our concern for one another, and I want to be a part of that? 
See, I think a lot of non-believers, non-church people today look at the Christian church generally and are not terribly impressed with it, not terribly attracted to it, not terribly inclined to be involved in it. I just received an email. My friend Rick was here last week, and he sent me an email uh, a couple days ago um, that was written by uh, a person, and the, the title of it was The Decline of the Mainline Church. The whole article is just talking about why is the mainline church particularly declining in the United States. And they were talking about not only numerical decline, but also um, uh, institutional decline and level of influence decline. So decline just about in every way you could define it. And I'm sure there are many reasons for this. But certainly one reason is because so often non-believers don't see a lot of fire in us. Not only do they not see much fire in us, but often they don't even smell any smoke. I don't know about you, but I find myself frequently asking the question, maybe it's just getting older, I don't know, but I frequently find myself asking the question, can others see that I am on fire for Jesus? When they look at my life, my words, my actions, my priorities, my commitments. Can non-believers see something worth emulating, something worth finding out about, something they want to be a part of? And honestly, as I examine my own life, I'm not sure they always do. In fact, I'm pretty sure they don't. And maybe these are questions that each one of us needs to ask ourselves individually and as a part of this church body. Acts reminds us that the church is only as strong and committed and attractive to others as we are. We are the church. But here's the great thing, especially for us. Here, here's a little bit of good news here. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 8.11, one of my favorite verses, that the very same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead and empowered those early believers in Pentecost in Jerusalem is the very same spirit who dwells in us, in you and in me. The very same spirit who wants to empower us to live for him. And the question is, are we ready to be empowered? Are we available and willing to open up our lives more fully to Jesus, to yield our lives more fully to the Spirit so he too can set us on fire. On this World Communion Sunday, we are reminded that Christ's church is so much larger than Old South or any individual congregation. It includes people from all over the world, just like on that first Pentecost. And we are reminded that we are part of a diverse body of believers from every people group and tongue and nation. We are members of a global fellowship of brothers and sisters, a worldwide movement of God over all the earth. And it is Jesus' desire to infuse his church wherever it is with his spirit so that we too might be on fire for him. And may it be so. Let's bow for prayer. 
Gracious God, we are so grateful that you have not left us alone. We know our own inadequacies, our own weakness. Help us, Jesus, we pray. We ask that you would indeed open up our lives more to you. Open up our lives more to your spirit working in and through us. We thank you for the many good things that are happening now in and through this church. And we pray you continue to even empower us more that we might be the church you call us to be. And so we are grateful for your spirit's fire in our lives today and every day. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Old South Presbyterian Church in Newburyport, Massachusetts. If you'd like more information about our historic church or you'd like to find out more about the gospel of Jesus, please visit our website at oldsouthnbpt.org. The peace of Christ be with you.